Craig read the first 15 verses in our reading this morning. I pick up in verse 16 of Isaiah chapter 3. The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. So far the preaching of God's per- reading of God's perfect word. May he now bless its preaching. How do you respond to someone else's bad stewardship? When a charity you support spends it in wasteful ways, do you give them more? When a child shows ingratitude or is careless with something of high value, what do you do? Kids, when you've worked hard on something, you've made it or you've built it, it took a lot of time and a lot of effort, and a friend is just reckless, what do you do? I bet in each scenario... You take it away. We take things away because people aren't being good stewards with what they're given. We take things away when people are ungrateful. And sometimes we take things away to get someone's attention, to show them that something has got to change. Judah, God's people, need to change. They're unfaithful. Isaiah is drawing their attention to that unfaithfulness, and now to its soon-to-be-realized consequences. We are not as we should be, he warns. Therefore, our lives will not be what they could be. Bad times are coming, and they're coming from the hand of God himself. In the book of Job, we're studying in Sunday school, God brings calamity into Job's life in defense of his own glory. Satan, the world, and even we need to see that there are those who by faith love and serve God for who he is and not because of what he gives. 
Still many people struggle to understand how a good God could bring suffering into someone's life. But that struggle often overlooks the preeminence of God's glory. In Isaiah, God is concerned for his own glory as well. He always must be. And there's another factor, the salvation of his people. Pride has led them away from God. And if they do not see their sin and turn from their sin, they will not be healed. What should God be willing to do to get the attention of rebellious people? What should God be willing to do to get our attention? How far should he be willing to go if that's what it will take to turn people back to him? In his epistle, Jude tells believers to be thoughtful and strategic about how we approach such situations. He says, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating the garment stained by the flesh. That's human-to-human attention-getting. And even in that case, us one to another, we should have a real sense of urgency for snatching them out of the fire. Now take God. God who is perfectly holy. God to whom all glory belongs. God who is the author of salvation. If pride is what keeps people from walking in the glory of his salvation... How far do you think he should be willing to go to break their pride? God's taking away can be very painful, but it flows from love for his people. Those who deny that pain and suffering are justified in this process usually do so because they deny any eternal consequences for those who perish in their sins. If we understand what the consequence of God's inaction would be, what would happen if he didn't save us? Well, then it becomes easier to understand how he justifies even the most painful taking aways that turn people back to him. Chapter 2 began with a glorious prophecy about the mountain of the Lord and the nations being drawn to it with God's people. Chapter 4 has a similarly encouraging prophecy about God visiting his people in glory. And what comes in between those two is the mess of Judah's present rebellion and the consequences for their pride. Behold, he begins, he warns them that what's coming is a cause and effect. You now reap soon Will you, you now sow, soon will you reap. The Lord God of hosts, verse 1, is also, verse 1, taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply. Then, verse 15, the same Lord God of hosts is again, verse 18, taking away the finery of Judah. And the prophecy of verse 4, what God gives his people only comes after the taking aways of verses 1 and 18. Verses 1 through 7 are the first taking away. He says, I'll take away support 
and supply. The first thing that Judah will lose are all those things that provide them with stability. Those things that we think we must have in order to be at peace. Food, water, protectors, judges, prophets. With these things taken away, the economy will collapse, as will the military. Skilled and experienced leadership will vanish, leading to the anarchy of verse 5. I hope we all chuckled when Craig read, You have a cloak, you be our leader. And the guy said, I don't have any cloak, don't look to me. The things they rely on for their day-to-day security and peace of mind will be gone. And it's a shame because those things were never the problem. They were good things, things the Lord had given precisely to provide his people with stability, secure food supplies, dedicated leader, wise judges, and good laws. These are good things that the Lord gave his people so that their lives can be at peace. But when we have them, it sure becomes easy to forget who gave them to us, doesn't it? The means that God uses to provide us with support and supply are gifts. And do not be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Times of widespread trial, like recessions and pandemics, can reveal that God's people have come to believe that peace comes because of the stuff, rather than because of God through the stuff, the gifts that he gives. The support and supply that Judah enjoyed didn't come by accident nor by their own doing. It came from God. He gave organized government and good leaders and bountiful harvests. And Judah forgot that. Soon God would take it all away. Maybe that would help them remember At the very least, maybe they'll start to ask why this happened. When this kind of calamity comes on a people, that's what they want to know. Why? The wicked are oblivious to anything they could have done to deserve it. When they complain, why us? Isaiah has an answer for them. But he also has an answer for the godly. The innocent who ask the same question because they experience the same calamity as the wicked. He who makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust also sends storms of disaster, not just to the rebel, but on the faithful who are standing nearby. This is what Isaiah explains in 8 through 15. Some in Judah will experience the exile because they've provoked God by their disobedience and rebellion. Others, despite their personal faithfulness, will suffer the same calamity. Not because of their own sin, but because they're part of a sinful generation. Isaiah wants both to have an answer to their question of why. The wicked need to understand why so that they turn from their sins. That's verse 11. The righteous need to understand why so they don't give in to despair while they're waiting on the fulfillment of the Lord's good promises. That's verse 10. And the cause is verses 8 and 9. The heart of it really at the end of verse 8. Their speech and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. 
We've already said that defense of his own glory is a cause worthy of God's most violent interventions. That's what Job shows us. And this would be true even completely apart from us. But this is about his glory among his own people. And it makes the case even more urgent. What is your posture toward God's glory? Do you even have one? Do you have one on purpose? Do you even consider? Is it on your radar? One scholar claims there are only two possible postures. You either delight in it or you defy it. Judah is clearly on team defy. Their speech and deeds are against the Lord, verse 8. They don't even try to hide it, verse 9. Can you even imagine? Can you guys even imagine a culture where people, even God's people, proudly wave the banner of sin parading down the streets for all to see? Or where God's people remain silent and compliant as others do? The people have no sense of holy obligation toward God or one another. They live selfishly. They're going to do what they need to do to survive, to get by, to be safe, to enjoy life. And so they mock the distinction between right and wrong. They redefine reality around their preferences. Look at the accusations in verses 14 and 15. The elders and princes have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in their houses. They crush God's people and grind the face of the pure. This isn't just the world. It's the church. God refers to them as his vine. And yet among them are rebellious and selfish vine dressers who instead of serving the people, they take from them. Instead of loving their neighbor, they love only themselves. Instead of defending truth and justice, they deny and pervert. All the while trying to maintain the titles and privileges of being a part of God's vine. What they're trying to do is to compartmentalize God's glory within their lives. We'll allow it to be at work over here. But this part of life, I've got to do what I've got to do. This belongs to me. Judah wanted the advantageous parts of God's glory, support and supply. But they didn't want real connection to the God behind those gifts. Another teacher put it this way, to be forgiven, yes. To be protected, yes. But beyond that, they didn't want God to be too real. They resisted his relevance to the whole of life. So when God provides his people with his own glorious presence. Is he really supposed to be indifferent when they defy it? He offers delight, but he offers delight in himself. Everything else is idolatry. And is it more loving for him to leave people in their idolatrous stupor or to wake them up even if it means taking away. 
What Judah will experience in punishment and exile is not the glory for which they were created. But God's glory is at stake if he fails to act. And that's why calamity will come. That's why the Lord takes away, not just there at the beginning, but part two, starting in verse 16. Back in verse one, the prophet said God was going to take away Judah's support and supply. Now in Hebrew, those are the same word. One is in the masculine form and one is in the feminine form. And if you look over verses two through seven, you'll notice the prevalence of male words and themes. And now in this taking away part two, the sites of judgment, the sites of judgment are set on the women of Judah. They were profiting from their husband's evil. They had become consumed with finery and the pleasures of the world. And now the Lord will take it away. The language in this section is intense. It's intended to shock and to humiliate the women who are defying God's glory. It should be shocking enough to hear about these things, much less to experience them. The women are haughty, verse 16. They are sinfully flirtatious and suggestive. Godly women have no need to look down on other women in order to puff themselves up or to puff themselves up by provoking the lust of men. The beauty isn't the problem, of course, but like the men, they've forgotten where these gifts come from and how he intends for them to be used. So their beauty, a gift of God, will be replaced with baldness. And since they want to dress suggestively, the Lord will humiliate them by exposing to all the little they left covered up. Both things can be true at the same time, you know. That a man who gives in to lust is responsible for his own sin. And that a woman who intends to rouse it is not herself blameless. Rather than using their wealth to outdo one another in honor and generosity, these women compete with one another for who can flaunt it the most. They would have loved Instagram and TikTok. They love to look at themselves, verse 23, in mirrors. And even more, they love to be seen by others. What's better than admiring yourself? Having the admiration of others. Now, candidly, modern scholars read these list of insults in verses 17 through 23, and we have no idea what a lot of these mean. The basic idea is easy enough to understand, but some of the specific cultural details of why these are so insulting are lost to history. One man summarizes it this way, though, that's good. Since they had shown their rebellion... From head to toe, the Lord will show the marks of his vengeance on every part of their body. And how desperate they'll be when he takes it all away. Verse 26 and then verse 1 of the next chapter paint the picture that they've lost it all and they cry out for any kind of help. Do you see that they're telling these men, look, I don't have to be your wife where you provide for me and where you're committed faithfully to me. Just give me your name. Just let me not have the shame that I have now. It's just what the men were doing, looking for a leader and a ruler. They've lost it all. And reading this, you would hope that Isaiah's mere warning would be enough to wake them from their idolatrous slumber. But we know from Judah's history that it wasn't. 
Because self-awareness is hard. No matter how clear the warnings are, it's another thing to listen to them. In Judah's case, it would only be through the dramatic experience of the exile. They will actually have to live out what is prophesied here. And then some wayward rebels will turn back toward the God who saves. When we defy his glory, are we not provoking him to take dramatic action? The Lord's desire is not to take away. It's to give to his people. He wants us to delight in his glory. It's what he made us for. But sometimes to get us from here to there, he has to do some taking away. And notice, I did not say that he gives back as if what we can expect is only to receive what he took away. He took away from Judah security and beauty. Those are the two emphases of the passage. But verses 2 through 6 show that he doesn't simply give them back to them on their own terms. No, he creates each in its true form from his glory, real beauty and real security. And this he gives to his people, unmediated, as it were. Verse 2, he sends a beautiful branch to bear good fruit among them. Look at what the fruit is. Verses 3 and 4, through this branch, he deals with their sin. A spirit of fire will burn and consume their filth. He will make them holy. It may sound painful, and it can be, but there is great grace in it. That our purification comes not from our own works or our own efforts or acts of penance. It comes from the work of the Spirit. The Spirit of judgment who judges our sin, convicting us of it. And the Spirit of fire who burns our filth away. Creating in us clean hearts the the purity that is required for a safe encounter with the glory of God. For us to delight in God's glory, it's got to be a safe place for us to be. Then in verse 5, he blesses them with his glory. A friend of mine loves to praise the counter-predictable nature of our faith. And it is indeed an incredible paradox how all this worked out. Seeking their own glory, they got nothing but shame and brokenness. And then Abandoning their own glory made room for the immeasurable immeasurable glory of God within them. When we give up our insistence to work on ourselves, we make room for the Spirit to do God's work within us. And that, verse 6, is where lasting security is found the one that survives the storms and the trials of life. The one that says, though the earth be shaken and the mountains be moved, yet God's people are secure. The answers to the pain of loss, God's taking aways, are found in the glory of God. No matter how we're living, If we're denying his glory by the way we're living, God is taking away to turn us back. 
One pastor says that he leads us into loss in order to enrich us with lasting gain. God is there in the loss. He made the loss so that we could gain. This pastor says that God's work is both terrible and beautiful. It seems severe at times, but only because his love is so intense and his imagination so colorful that he settles for nothing less than our complete salvation. When we say, how long, O Lord? Which is a biblical thing to say. When we look at our suffering and say, how long, O Lord? Are we satisfied when his answer is, until I have made you like my son? With this perspective on loss and trials, we see that we can't hold tightly to the things of earth, the gifts. They may come, but they may go. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. What we must hold tightly to is God. And that the glory is God's means we also should not be surprised that this whole process is rather inglorious in the eyes of the world. You think about the exodus. That was probably pretty impressive to somebody who understood the details, the watching world who sort of saw it happen. That God was able to lead through a series of miracles these people out of the powerful clutches of Pharaoh. Will the return from exile be quite so impressive to the watching world? The freedom of oppressed slaves from a powerful tyrant or the restoration of rebels brought about by the one they rebelled against in the first place. It's along that trajectory that we find the glory of the church, isn't it? The glory of the church is not in great cities or nations, powerful armies or military victories. The glory of the church doesn't look particularly glorious to the world. Does it look so to you? Because the glory of the church is right there in verse 2. It's the branch of the Lord. Isaiah could see dimly that that branch was the hope of Israel. We see clearly that that branch is Christ. And that the glory of the church isn't found in size or number, in impressive street parades, cultural acceptance, or political support. The glory of the church is found in our union with Christ. The Christ who will guide his people faithfully through times of gain and through times of loss who will provide the power through which his people persevere in even the darkest and strangest of cultural circumstances. And in fact, the power through which his church will overthrow the gates of hell itself. For a church with this kind of glory in its midst, shouldn't every month be one in which we proudly proclaim that glory. We don't shrink back in fear or hide in embarrassment from a vocal culture 
we delight in the glory of God. Christians, whatever else is happening, God's glory is with us, his people. And it's glory that lasts beyond current circumstances and every cultural trend. It's the glory that creates true beauty and real security. This is what the Lord gives. May we delight in it until he comes. Let's pray.